Well, our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 24, which can be found on page 551 in your pew Bibles. Uh, before we get there, I do want to say uh, it's nice to be back in here, isn't it? We have been uh, out at Worship on the Water last week, which was excellent. And uh, the week before that, we did a kind of an impromptu service outside at the Courthouse Square, which was also wonderful to be out there. But it's kind of like when you go on vacation and it's good to get away, but it's always good to come home again, right? <laughs> and so it's good to be back here in the sanctuary again, uh, gathered together here in this space at this time. And uh, similarly, we are looking, this morning we'll be looking in Acts. We have been in the book of Philippians over the summer, and last week was our last week of that. And so we are this week coming back to the book of Acts. And so it is like we are uh, kind of back on track after an interruption of sorts. And just as I was saying with the kids, after all the jokes, um, that's what we're looking at today is times of interruption. So we're going to read three stories. That's why I'm telling you this ahead of time. We're going to read three stories of uh, situations that all have similar uh, storylines in view. Uh, We have people dying and coming back to life again in all three stories. And yet, in all three stories, uh, there is an element of an interruption uh, going on with what otherwise was happening. So I want you to be listening for that as we go through these. And then we're really going to talk about uh, Acts 21 and 12 and what that has to do with us in particular. Uh, Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for calling us to yourself and calling us together. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to hear your word to help us to hear it, to understand it, to receive it, to be changed by it, that we may truly live it. God, we pray that you would do this work in our lives by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we begin. And um, starting in verse 7, God had been providing for the prophet Elijah at a brook and um, a time of drought. Starting in verse 7, it says, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth from your mouth is the truth. Turn it into our gospel lesson. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Jesus was teaching. And then in verse 18, it says, While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, He said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, those are both passages I would love to preach uh, but that's not the, not the passage for today. Um, but I do hope that those will still be ringing around in your ears and your minds uh, as you think about those interruptions and what, how they were dealt with. But this morning, we, like I say, we're back in the book of Acts. And we have been in the book of Philippians where we talked week after week about Paul being in Rome in prison there, writing to this church in Philippi. And, uh, but we had kind of taken off from the book of Acts earlier and just sort of, <laughs> now, now Paul's in Rome. But, um, but he's not. That's not where we were when we left off in Acts. In fact, last time we left in Acts, he was in Ephesus, and there had been a big riot going on where people were, like, chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, you know, Paul wants to go out there, and they're like, no, don't go out there if you go out there right now. That's going to be the end of you. And so, um, 
that's, it, it was just a bad scene. That's where we pick things up, is Paul in Ephesus with all of this uh, kind of rioting going on and things not going apparently very, very well as far as Paul <laughs> uh, communicating the message of Jesus to all those in the area, which is what he's trying to do. What we're going to do now, though, is we're going to start here and with Paul back in Ephesus and see how he gets to Rome, how he gets to the place where he then writes this letter back <laughs> to the Philippians. And today, uh, we're looking at him going several places, but uh, he starts off in Ephesus, a place that we know pretty well from the letter he writes later to the church in Ephesus that we have in our Bibles as Ephesians. He also is going to be in Philippi today. You'll see that in a second. And that is what we've been looking at is how uh, he written this letter to the church in Philippi that we have in our Bibles as Philippians. Um, there's also, it doesn't say specifically Corinth, but he does go there as well in this particular passage. And there we know that he, <laughs> we know that place from the letters we have First and Second Corinthians. And so in this particular passage, we see him going to these churches um, several times, and, but this is just kind of on his way to Rome. And I told you we're going to be talking about interruptions. Paul has been setting out for Rome. He wants to go to Rome because from there, this could be a, a wonderful place to make sure that the gospel gets everywhere. Rome was kind of the the hub of all the hubs. You know how uh, different airlines have their, <laughs> uh, if you're going to fly on that airline, you're going through that, um, that city. If you're going to fly on Delta, you're probably going through Atlanta. If you're going to fly on American, you're probably going through, uh, through Dallas. Um, and if you're flying in the winter, you're going to go through Chicago, whatever it is you're flying. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but that was, Rome was the hub of everything. And so information was all going in and out of Rome. And so Paul wants to get to Rome to be able to spread this message of Jesus, this good news for all people to all people. And so he's heading to Rome. But now there's been a bit of an interruption, not just that uh, things are going on where he is, though everywhere he goes, there's sort of problems there. But there's also an issue in Jerusalem where uh, they need help in Jerusalem. And so Paul is now going around and gathering people from different churches who are providing gifts to take back to Jerusalem. And so, I mean, if you look at a map, Paul is most of the way to Rome. And now he's turning around and going back to Jerusalem to help the people there. But what we're going to see is even that interruption in his way to Rome is actually how he ends up getting to Rome. So that is just by way of sort of foreshadowing and what's, what's to come. But even for uh, today, what we're looking at is Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. And, uh, and we'll see some interruptions here. And I, as we go through this, I really want us to you know, stop for a moment first and just think about how you typically deal with interruptions, how you typically respond or more likely react to interruptions when they happen. And if you want to go even deeper, 
spend just a few seconds answering the question, why? Why do you react the way that you do when interrupted? All right. Acts chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, that was that riot in Ephesus we talked about. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. That would be more the area of Corinth. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. That's the area where Philippi is. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi, there it is, after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There's precedent. <laughs> there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. All right. We have, <laughs> I guess, admittedly strange things happening in this story. And um, if... If it weren't a matter of life and death, it'd be some comedy here with Eutychus falling from the window like he does. But um, I'm always, this story always reminds me of a time when we were in seminary and there was a four-year-old and we were in a second floor apartment and uh, they had the window open, but the screen was there and he just leaned back against the window and the screen fell out and he started to fall out. And his mom from halfway across the room leapt over there with what is only a mom-like skill, leapt over there and grabbed him by his ankles as he's hanging out the second floor window and then pulled him back in. Everybody's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> but it's a, it's a real thing. This is a heavy deal. And so, um, like I say, when we read about this young man falling, He's got a funny name, and it's sort of, you know, funny that Paul is talking on and on, and is like, yeah, we all know what that's like. Uh, but this is a real matter of life and death, and this young man falling from the window, and they go down and they pick him up dead. This is heavy stuff. But I want us to hear how it's handled and to hear what that has to do with us. Um, because of how this, what this has to do with how we deal with interruptions. And I know it even seems callous to think of 
this young man dying as an interruption. But I hope you'll see what I mean in a second. So, um, but let's go back. Paul has been traveling around, and he's actually where he is right now because of an interruption to his schedule. An interruption to his schedule on the way to Rome because now he's headed back to Jerusalem. But even on his way back to Jerusalem, uh, if you look back at verse 3, it says, because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Do you hear this? It's like everything Paul is setting out to do, he ends up not doing. Do you remember how he got to, to Macedonia, to Philippi in the first place? It was because he kept trying to go other places. Like he had in mind, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, and the Spirit kept preventing him, and then finally he has this vision of, no, come help us in Macedonia. And that's how he goes there. Paul, from the time he meets Jesus, it seems like the rest of his story is just littered with interruptions from what he's got in mind to do. In fact, the whole, this whole part of his life is a major interruption from what he had in mind to do as a young man growing up, right? He had his mind set on what he was going to do, and Jesus said, let me interrupt that. Maybe you know how that feels. So, if you look at all of the rest of Paul's life as one large interruption, you can understand why he is able to deal with the interruptions that he faces the way he does. I think he gets it. I think he gets that Jesus is the Lord of all, and that Jesus, that means Jesus is even Lord over the interruptions in our lives. And so when Paul has to not go into Asia, not go to here, but to go to Philippi instead, he says, well, okay, and that's what we'll do. Or when now he says, oh, there's... <laughs> <laughs> They've rioted against me in, uh, in Ephesus, so we're going we're gonna to go on from there. When uh, I was going to set sail for Syria, but apparently there's some plot. I'm not sure what that is, but there's a plot of some sort. Okay, we'll go this other place. But you don't see him getting frustrated or giving up and saying, well, then, fine, forget it. I'm not going to do this anymore. Instead, it's, well, if I can't go there and tell people about Jesus, then I'll go here and tell people about Jesus. Like, that continues on. And so I I want us to have in mind, as we think about interruptions, how we frame the interruptions. How do we understand the interruptions? And how, then, do we treat the interrupters? (laughs) Paul goes through several places, but ending up in Troas for our story today. And in uh, Troas, which, interestingly enough, is exactly where he was when he first had the vision of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. But here he is again, back in Troas. And, uh, And it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. They come together and they have their life together centered around the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul has not yet written all of his letters. And so as the people gather together and Paul is there, He's going to tell them 
about Jesus. He's going to tell them the things uh, that they can't just pick up their Bibles and read. He's going to go through most likely what he does everywhere he goes and go through the whole of the Old Testament pointing to how Jesus is the Messiah, how Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so he goes through with them, but of course there's a lot to get through, right? Um, it is likely he actually had just written the book of Romans, so you can imagine. <laughs> just, just try this, for example. Take the book of Romans in your Bible. Find somebody who's never read it before, and then just walk with them through it and try to explain the whole thing to them and time yourself. <laughs> it, might take, it might take all night. I think these are the kinds of things that Paul is doing as he's explaining to, um, to the people in Troas. But they are gathered together, and they are gathered together around the breaking of bread and the teaching and preaching of Jesus. That what is framing their whole life is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if your whole life is framed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, this changes how you view everything, including interruptions, including scheduling. Now, I know for a second here, I'm going to be preaching to the choir because y'all are here on Labor Day weekend. (laughs) Uh, But this is what we still do. We still gather together on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Day, (laughs) the day when Jesus rose again from the dead to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because this is a way that we do center our lives around who he is and his death and his resurrection and what that means for us that we then go from here into the rest of our week remembering the resurrection of Jesus and remembering the resurrected Lord who goes with us in everything. And so uh, we still do this, or do we? If this is the thing that gives everything we do meaning, Why would we not want to gather together to break bread together, to sing God's praises together, to hear his word read and proclaimed together? Why would we not do that? Well, the list of the reasons why we wouldn't are a mile long. So let me ask it a different way. Is there any good reason why we wouldn't do that. There may still be reasons there, but that's a much shorter list. No, we wouldn't gather together. We wouldn't gather together today. I'm in the hospital today. That's a good reason. I'm not going to gather together today. there's a game on TV. Eh, Maybe not as good a reason. I'm not going to gather together because the preacher's boring. And I might fall asleep. Look, that's no excuse either. (laughs) This guy fell asleep, fell out a window, and died. 
and Paul kept preaching, and everybody stayed and listened. Although I don't think they, I'm not sure he fell asleep because it was boring, but anyway. Um, but they gather together, whatever they've got going on. They gather together because this is the central event in all of history, and so it's going to be the central and defining event of their whole lives and their lives as people. And so the question we have to ask, uh, I think we have wrongly understood the question about uh, attending church on Sundays because we have asked it in the wrong way. And we've asked the question, do I have to go to church on Chris, on, <laughs> do I have to go to church on Sunday to be a Christian? And so we've put it in that question of, do I have to? And let me tell you, there are almost no have tos in Christianity, <laughs> but there are a whole lot of get tos. And so um, by framing it in the, do I have to, we've set it off wrong to begin with. It's almost like saying, do I have to eat fruits and vegetables to stay alive? Well, no. You can stay alive getting your nutrition from a Snickers bar, but I would not recommend it. We don't want to put these things in, do I have to, anyway. And so even from the earliest days, we see Christians gathering together on the first day of the week, framing their whole lives around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think this is the reason why when we have this young man falling out of the window and dying, even that, and how that is handled, that itself does not become the center of the story. Do you notice that? It's a big deal. This is not the kind of thing that's happening all the time. And we just read several stories back to back of people who died and were raised again, and so we go, oh, well, I guess this is what we should expect as normal, everyday Christian experience, but that's not it. In fact, those are three stories told over several thousand years because it's not the normal experience. These are the stories that stand out as abnormal and yet as stories that all point to who God is and what he's about. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote, which I've got to get right here, um, where he says, miracles, and every time you encounter a miracle in the uh, Bible, I hope you have this quote in mind, says, miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I love that quote because it's like uh, when you're looking at a single puzzle piece versus looking at the picture on the box. And how that uh, single puzzle piece often doesn't make sense by itself. And you can imagine that all the other pieces are supposed to look like that, but they're not. Then you look at the picture on the box and you say, oh, I see. This is all part of a much bigger picture. And miracles are kind of like, uh, sometimes I see them as the piece. I think it's more like the picture on the box. That picture on the box that is the smaller picture of what the whole puzzle is going to turn out to look like. And so, but we're dealing with a much larger puzzle. Much larger puzzle. It says you don't even have a vantage point to step back far enough to see the whole picture. And so we have these miracles that break in that say, this is what's going on. This is what things are headed. And when we see uh, people being raised to life again, then we say, oh, this is the God who gives life. 
And that should not just make us um, expect resurrection for our loved ones. This is the kind of thing that makes us excited for resurrection for all of us in Jesus at some point. But even now, this is the God who gives us life from the beginning. The reason we are alive right now is because God has given us life. And so every time we see a resurrection in the Bible, that should not only make us look forward to and long for resurrection in the future for ourselves, but even to be grateful for the life we have now. That it is God who's the giver of life. This is what I mean when C.S. Lewis means when he says um, that the miracles are retelling in small letters of the whole uh, story written in letters too large for some of us to see. So every time we see a miracle, we ought to say, well, what does that tell us about the big story? How is this a retelling in small letters? This, I think, is what's going on with Paul when he goes down to Eutychus. We're not given a lot of detail there, are we? This is not um, told to us by Luke as, here's what to do when someone dies. He doesn't give us that. He doesn't tell us what Paul uh, does or says. There's no, uh, like this is not a CPR manual. Medical practice doesn't even give us the prayers he prays. None of it. He just runs down, throws himself on him, and says, don't be alarmed. He's alive. And then they go right back upstairs and keep doing what they were doing. They break bread again. Probably because at this point they're getting hungry. (laughs) And he keeps on talking until daylight. All night long. Is there anybody you can imagine listening to that long and being okay with it? (laughs) You say, if they were talking about whatever the topic is, where you would stay up all night to listen to that? It has to be something pretty good, right? These people are staying up all night to listen to Paul because what he is saying, it's like when uh, Jesus is talking to, this, talking to the crowds and he says, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they say, Ew, and they're out of there. Except for the 12. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, aren't you going to go anywhere too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. The reason the people are staying and listening to Paul is because they are hanging on his every word because he has the words of life. He understands who Jesus is in connection with the creator of the universe and how God has actually revealed himself in the person of Jesus and how Jesus has then given himself for us and what that means and how that changes everything about our everyday experience. And now Paul is getting ready to leave. And I think one of the reasons why uh, today we gather together and we kind of half pay attention or we, you know, even reading our Bibles kind of, you know, let my mind wander about whatever else. I think we have this attitude of I can get this anytime I want. I can hear this whenever I want. If I don't hear the sermon today, I can hear it next week or I can download a podcast. I can listen to a sermon online. I can... And so it's always available. Yeah, I'm not reading my Bible 
you know, wholeheartedly right now, but that's because I can read it later if I want to. I've got Bibles aplenty, and whenever I feel like it, I can do that. These people are hanging on his every word because they don't know that they're going to hear it again. Not from him. This is it. And what I want to say to us is we don't know that we're ever going to hear it again either. We like to think that we know what's coming in the future, but I hope that you'll see, even as we have looked at interruption after interruption after interruption, that's what our lives are made of, our interruptions of what we thought was going to happen. And so when we encounter the word of God, we should not be listening half-heartedly as those who say, well, I can read this again later. I can listen to it again later. This may be it. And so let us listen. Let us pay attention. Let us take it in. Let us hang on every word that we would know the God of life, the God of love, the God of grace, of mercy, that we would frame our every days, that we would frame all our interruptions not with the events and the interruptions themselves, but we would frame them all with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That that is what would give us meaning and understanding for all that we are going through. And that would enable us to face our interruptions as opportunities. Opportunities to learn and to grow, but also to serve. I want to conclude with a prayer. comes from the book Every Moment Holy, and it's just a variety of uh, prayers and liturgies. But this, this is a, called a liturgy before serving others, and I think it's a fitting conclusion to what we see here from Paul and what it means to view all of our interruptions framed uh, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we would be able to serve. So let's pray. O Christ, who made himself the servant of all, Lord, we would set our hearts and our affections upon you and upon you alone. For we can only serve others rightly when such service is undertaken from first to last as an act of devotion offered to you. In serving others, we are freed from our need for the praise of others. So that even if our kindnesses are shed from from scarred hearts as rain from a sloped tin roof, our joy will not be dimmed, for we know that you have received and remembered each act of sacrifice and reckoned it as a love rendered to you. So let our love be sincere. Let our service be fearless, O Lord. We would serve in imitation of you, who poured out your life for us. We would serve knowing that your spirit is ever at work in the lives of those we serve, ever calling, ever drawing, ever seeking to soften hearts encased in fear and disappointment and anger and idolatry. So let our kindnesses and sacrifice fall like warm shafts of sunlight on icy ground. We cannot know the end of another person's story, 
Our lives so often only briefly intersect. So let us be content to minister regardless of visible outcomes, trusting that the small mercies we extend will be woven into the larger theme of redemption at work in the lives of others as you woo them to yourself, drawing their hearts by graces offered and shaping our own hearts too in this process of learning to serve well and by learning to serve well, learning to love well. Amen.